I uh, welcome Kensley Beal and Megan Taylor to the newest podcast episode of the ICA Health and Wellness Committee. Um, welcome to this episode and thank you for accepting the invitation. Um, I, I'm going to uh, let them introduce themselves, but before that, uh, we'll be talking about five ways to implement health in the Clarnet Studio. I don't know if Kensley or Megan, which one of you wants to start introducing yourselves? Kensley, go, go ahead. And... I can start. So I'm a classically trained clarinetist who sort of had a midlife crisis in my early 20s when I needed to have surgery due to uh, a problem called stress velopharyngeal insufficiency. And that sort of changed the trajectory of my life from wanting to be a full-time clarinetist to being a clarinet health researcher. So I went ahead and finished my PhD in performing arts health uh, in 2022. And then I opened a business called the Musicians Health Lab, where I help NASM accredited institutions implement music or musicians health questions and concepts into their classroom and help connect them with the health providers at their institution. Um, as a small aside, I also work as a freelance gymnastics journalist and I cover gymnastics across the globe. And it's really sort of these two areas of my life, the musician's health and the gymnastics journalism that have given me an avenue to help musicians have a more health aware mindset. And I'm Megan Taylor. I am uh, a PhD candidate right now, hopefully finishing up my doctorate this spring, fingers crossed. Um, my doctorate is in performing arts health as well as Kensley's. Uh, we both studied at the University of North Texas for our degrees. And I got into performing arts health from really just being interested in math and sciences all growing up, but also having this deep passion for music and not really being sure what I wanted to do as an undergrad and changing uh, my, my career trajectory in my undergrad from a science background to a music education, did a music education undergrad, went on and got a master's degree in clarinet. And then University of North Texas had this program that really melded both of my passions together. And so I went for it. And while I was doing my degree, really fell in love with um, the idea of helping to integrate music education and uh, health and wellness concepts into the classroom. So specifically with secondary band choir and orchestra teachers. So that's what been what my research has focused on. And I've worked as a project manager for an NIH funded grant for a few years to start that process and have really explored um, continuing that work as I've uh, gone into my dissertation. Thank you very much uh, to the both of you. Um, well, both of you guys mentioned how you uh, relate to uh, health and wellness as well as musicians' health. Um, in Kensley's uh, um, story, it's a little bit more dramatic, right, the change. Um, let me just ask you that question first, um, Kensley. How did it affect your professional career when you realized that changes needed to be made? It was really eye-opening because it took about two years for me to get a diagnosis to even understand that there was a name to this strange nasal grunting that was happening while I was playing and I had really, really supportive teachers across private lessons and orchestra and band, but no one really knew exactly what was going on and how to help me. And so I realized that 
because of my experience, I could be the person who helps educators fill the gap because they have so much on their plate as it is already. Like they're constantly being asked to meet new state standards or new national standards and barely have time for themselves. And so I want to make their job easier by saying, hey, I have this knowledge and here are the resources and here's how you can put it into your studio and classroom without it being a lot of stress on their part. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, one of my questions, um, you both had a research done and uh, an article is on the way to uh, publishing. Um, what motivated you guys, both of you or ladies, to, to, to do that research? <laughs> Well, we were really kind of thrown into the fire our first week at University of North Texas. One of our um, mentors or our teachers in the program was like, hey, you two both play the clarinet. You should really do a, a research project together. And we're like, well, I guess we're doing a research project together and just had to do a lot of work up front to kind of figure out how to do a research project on our own and with some guidance from other people that we talked to and put together a survey and submitted it for a conference and they got accepted at a conference. So we're like, okay, now we have to, we have to do this research. And so we put it out and, um, you know, we both played the clarinet. And so we knew that there were things that we wanted to ask about, but it was really interesting at the beginning stages of the research, doing interviews with other clarinetists to see what they thought we should ask about and what the musician health community thought we should ask about and doing research on or looking at past research articles that had incorporated clarinet and just the lack of specificity in the clarinet research especially was really surprising to us and I think motivated us to want to put together this project. Absolutely. And in the meantime, we should say a big thank you to everyone listening who took our extraordinarily lengthy survey. I am so sorry it was so long. Yes. <laughs> I think as new researchers, we were very ambitious to answer all of the questions that we had to answer or had questions to. And so thank you for spending that 30 minutes that it took to fill out that survey. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, as far as I'm I'm, I'm uh, associated with the document, so I've read the document, and uh, um, you guys um, surveyed between 300 and 400 different uh, musicians, and and there are some uh, you know different statistics: female, uh, uh, male versus different age levels. Um, I, how did you guys uh, find a mutual ground for 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 the theme of the research? Well, what was that leading um, the thought or idea that you guys would pinpoint, uh, pinpoint the topic of the research? Well, I think one of the biggest things was that the research on clarinetists was just extraordinarily outdated. And the one existing epidemiologic or population study on clarinetists was so old that it had to describe WWW as the World Wide Web. So if that tells you how outdated it was. And so we really just wanted to ask many similar questions that that research by Thrasher and Chesky did ask. And then for me, one of the motivating factors was I knew because of my time living in Germany, I knew about the difference between the French and the German clarinet systems and they have different bores and different fingerings and different sizes. And so I have this lingering question of, well, do they have different injury patterns because one of them may be lighter or, you know, you may have more intraoral pressure because one of the mouthpieces is smaller. And unfortunately, we only got five uh, 
people who played the German clarinet, so we weren't really able to dive into what the differences were between those who play the Bohm and the Euler system. But that is still something that we're hoping to, but it was a, it was a motivation for this research. Absolutely. So this research was a global research, if I understand correctly, right? That is correct. We we had a 350 total participants that uh, submitted valid and complete survey responses to us. Um, about two-thirds of those, or a little more than two-thirds, were from the United States, and the rest were from other countries, so United Kingdom, Canada, and then some other other countries that were represented. Um, a little more than half of our participants, so 62% were female, and then about 90%, 98% actually played the French Bohm system, as Kinsley just mentioned. So quite a uh, broad range in some aspects, but then others, there's definitely still some room for improvement in surveying different types of clarinets, different countries across the world to kind of gain a better understanding of clarinetists worldwide at large. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the interesting Sorry, was, go ahead. One of the interesting things was we had significantly more female respondents to our research uh, question than we had male respondents. And one thing that we're hoping to maybe understand better in the future is why that is. Is it simply because there really are more female clarinetists or is it because female clarinetists may be more likely to experience injury and therefore more likely to take a survey about musicians health problems or maybe they are more open to talk about those things right that too um my question is um out of the participants how many of those close to 350 participants were professional clarinet players or just hobby Planet players that you uh, surveyed? Let's see. Is there any statistic on it? I know we, we asked, I don't know that we asked a specific question about professional versus hobbyist clarinet players. I do have some information on like how long they've been playing. Most of our clarinet players had been playing for around 20 years. The mean age was around 34 years old, so maybe a little bit older than we were initially anticipating. Um, most of them had done about 10 years of formal clarinet study, which is helpful to note. And then the majority of our clarinetists did play the B-flat clarinet, but we also had a, a few that played some of the auxiliary clarinets, you know, E-flat, alto bass, contrabass even was represented in our sample. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, what are some of the findings um, that you, you could pinpoint based on the research like occupational hazards or or just recurring pattern in, in the performing arts regarding clarinetists? Yeah, so in our survey, we were able to use these really cool interactive body maps that were designed by one of our colleagues. And the inside of the bottom lip had never actually been studied before in clarinetists. So our study is the very first one that pinpointed that area as a problem area and we found that not only is the inside of the bottom lip the most prevalent or most common body site for pain it's also the most influential pain site that causes people to stop playing or have problems with their playing we also found that the second most influential and second most prevalent area was in the right wrist and we also found that there were some differences in those musculoskeletal sites between men and women. So for men, they also had some pain in their upper neck and back, whereas for women, it was all in their inside of the bottom lip or in the right hand or wrist region. Okay. Megan, do you want to talk about some of the factors that we found that influenced 
clarinetist pain. Before we go into that, I would like to ask the questions. You mentioned the technology body map. Mm -hmm. And I would love mm -hmm. to um, just bring the listener in on that, what that methodology is and how that works so that we can have a picture, a visual on that. So this, the body map was a really fascinating um, aspect of our survey. And like we said, one of our colleagues was the one who developed this and we added on uh, the nasal area actually as and also a, a pain site that we asked about. But the design of the body maps was essentially different uh, kind of sketches of the body. So we had a physical, like the whole body, and then also some more specific pain sites in the hands and then the mouth, including some of the teeth, the tongue, the inner bottom lip, and then the embouchure, a bunch of different sites on the outside of the lip. And then we added the nasal area, like I just mentioned. And what we anticipated or what we hoped people would do in these body maps was select pain sites that they had in the past, I believe it was past month, Kinsley, correct me if I'm wrong, but or was it past, past year. year? Past year, mm -hmm. correct. So they would select a pain site in the past year. And some of these sites were very site specific. So like this particular joint on the finger, all the way down on each of the 10 fingers that we have. Then we also included some sites that were more broad. So it was like this entire finger and then like this entire bottom part of your hand. And what we we're trying to do there is differentiate between site specific and more diffuse pain. And so site specific pain would be more uh, maybe linked to a muscular a skeletal problem, musculoskeletal problem versus more diffuse pain would be potentially linked to maybe more of a nervous system issue. It's really kind of trying to lump things into two big buckets um, to really get a diagnosis. So you'd have to see a medical professional for this, but just in our research, wanting to see what clarinet is viewed as more of this site-specific versus more diffuse, more uh, pain spread over a full area was an interesting finding for us. Um, what we ended up finding, like Kensley said, was those top pain sites that people selected were often that inner bottom lip and then the right thumb, right wrist area were our most prevalent pain sites. And then when we flipped them and ranked these sites by influence, both of those sites were at the very top, which makes sense. I mean, when you're playing the clarinet, the two areas that the clarinet is touching on the body are the inside of the bottom lip or where the force is coming down from your lip through to your teeth and there's that contact there and then also you're supporting the weight of the instrument mostly again on your right thumb and then holding it up with your right wrist area so logically these areas kind of make sense but thinking back to that study that asked um, clarinetists about their injuries and their pain and use the the World Wide Web as their uh, kind of moniker for WWW, they they neglected to ask about this this area at all. And so we really, I think this is a really cool finding that we can help uh, clarinetists, hopefully with some of the assistive aids that we'll talk about in a little bit, um, kind of have these tools that they can use to prevent some of these issues, even though they seem so maybe logical, but just this finding, I think, is really, really inspiring. Absolutely. Um, my question would be, so the body map that um, um, you are describing, is it some patches that um, wires hooked up to and so they, they measure some data or um, how do they measure uh, those points of pain? So I think those could be ways that you could potentially move forward in the research. For us, we were just asking uh, self-reported. So where have you experienced pain in the past year and to select those sites? We did not uh, pursue any like physiological testing, but I think that would be a really cool research project to do in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my next question would be that um, 
You mentioned a good couple of areas of the body that clarinetists um, experience um, in their, in their uh, professional uh, occupation as, as pain cycles. One and most prevalent you both mentioned was the uh, lower lip. Um, is there any connection that uh, we can we can point out to in the research that would say um, this this is related to uh, some mus muscular uh, skeletal um, health concerns or habitual um, performing in the research? We don't have anything specifically linked in our survey that says this is exactly why the inside of the bottom lip is such a prevalent pain site and influential pain site for musician. As Megan mentioned, of course, the inside of the bottom lip is an area of contact, of constant contact when you're playing. Um, we could certainly surmise that maybe if a musician needs to play higher or a more technical piece, they may be more prone to gripping, but we don't, we don't have that data currently right now to say that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, are there any uh, suggestions um, for those pains against those pains that clarinetists experience based on research that you from your professional career, health career, you can um, uh, provide? Yeah, another another question we asked our clarinetist was, "What are the things in your in your clarinet playing that you feel like negatively impact your your pain?" And a few of the top results were technique and practice habits, uh, physical characteristics of the instrument, specific repertoire, and then other kind of lifestyle things like their personal technology use, maybe the demands of a non-music job that they have. So these, with these factors in mind, I think we can kind of help guide clarinetists and kind of structure their, their playing habits and their practice habits in ways that maybe, maybe not eliminate, but hopefully reduce some of the concerns that they have about their clarinet-related pain. Uh, for example, I think Kensley's mentioned this in a few of her research papers, but just the influence of kind of ramping up to a an event. And I think Kansas will do a better job of talking about this. So I'll turn it over to her. But I think those kind of few factors, um, knowing that those are, exist and that are what clarinetists believe are related to their clarinet playing pain, I think can help start to shape how we respond to this pain. Yeah, so there's, um, there's a model that our paper was based on that I think is really key to understanding what how we address these health issues. And that's called the biopsychosocial model. And that relates to all disease. The, the, this theory says that, you know, like all diseases and all health problems stem from these three areas. So the biological factors, things like if you're a male or female, how old you are, things like that impact your health. And then you have the psychological factors, which are, what are my beliefs? Um, how much trauma have I experienced in my in my past. And then you have the social sociological factors like what is my education? How wealthy is my family? And all of these things together come together to create the best way for us to get help for ourselves. So for example, one of the things that was mentioned was demand of outside jobs. Megan talked about in her story that the time she had the worst pain was when she was working a job cutting pizzas because she was using those same muscles over and over and over again. Well, that may not be everyone's story, but that is a key part to her getting the best help that she needs. 
in other research, specifically in research on pianist, we know that the physical characteristics of that instrument were developed at the time where men were the professional instrumentalists. I would wager a heavy bet that when the clarinet was standardized, it was done so at a time when men were the main musicians. So maybe this instrument is not actually ergonomically appropriate for those with smaller hands, which tend to be females. It's not always true. It's just more likely to be true. And then we have things like repertoire. And I use this example, like Paganini, right? One of the greatest violinists of all times. It's well understood that he had a hypermobility disorder. Well, Paganini has become one of the standardized pieces of repertoire for violinists. And I have to ask myself, is using standardized rep from a man who had a hypermobility disorder actually good for people who don't have a hypermobility disorder? And we have things like this in our clarinet repertoire. Like, why, why did we choose to standardize the things that we have standardized? And are they healthy for every body? And so when we sort of look at this whole picture of how what influences being a healthy clarinetist, we have to be willing to challenge the status quo of what has been accepted for so long. Absolutely. Thank you. So you both mentioned some um, musculoskeletal problems clarinetists are facing, or even pianist, as a matter of fact, violinist, what are some of the non-musculoskeletal problems that we are facing as clarinetists? Uh, one of the most common ones that we, <laughs> sorry, I thought Megan was taking this one. Um, one of the most common ones that we see is music performance anxiety. And we know that about 98% of musicians do experience music performance anxiety at some point in their life. So one of the things that we looked at was something called athletic identity that we sort of transposed to clarinet identity. And this is very preliminary. It's piloted data. So we began to look at um, do musicians or clarinetists who I more heavily identify as clarinetist have more pain or have more anxiety. And I don't think we have anything quite conclusive yet to say about that, but I think it's an important area that people should know that we are investigating. In our particular survey, 93% uh, of our clarinetists had music performance anxiety, 26% uh, had depression, 21% had headaches. Um, we also had those who had experienced noise-induced hearing loss and tinnitus, which is the ringing in the ear as well. So it's not just these musculoskeletal problems that clarinetists were struggling with. Absolutely. Do we know if some of those non-musculoskeletal problems of the participants actually came from clarinet um, playing from the musicians' professions? Or is that, was that not related? That was something existing without being a, a, a professional musician or a clarinetist, as a matter of fact. I don't know that we specified um, to that level in the survey, but we did ask them, you know, how these, or if if they experience these things, and this is kind of what came back. Um, I think one of the important things to kind of also note about the identity scale that Kenzie was just mentioning is that we found that people more identified as a clarinetist 
uh, had a stronger clarinet identity as they were younger. But then as people aged, maybe you would take on other identities such as, you know, becoming a spouse or having children or getting a job that is maybe music related or perhaps not. So being aware that this identity um, can be higher in potentially younger people and maybe have more of an influence on pain or let's say as it has happened to Kensley in her professional career, you know, she identified as this clarinet player, had an injury, and then went through a period of my identity has been stripped away. And just being mindful of, as a teacher, what those situations can produce in your studio population or the people that you work with in your in secondary schools, any of those sorts of environments. Um, just being aware that identity is a huge uh, factor and it's evolving as we age and grow, but also has a strong influence on what we found uh, for pain sites and for just, I don't know how to wrap this up, <laughs> for pain and for um, influencing just your career in general. Yeah. yeah, I think there's, even to add on to that, we another belief that we asked about was no pain, no gain. And I was shocked to see how many people still agreed with that idea and especially how many young people still agreed with this idea. And so I think it's important to know, again, as we think about that biopsychosocial model that I mentioned earlier, that there are clarinetists who do hold on to this belief that you cannot be successful without having pain. And they may not be willing to report or talk about or even understand that there is something wrong because they have either been told or inherently believe that the way to be successful is to have this pain. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which is part of identity, as as you both mentioned. Actually, it was a fairly new um, way for me to look at identity because we, we do identify ourselves with our professions and, and what, whatever we do every day. It's part of our identity and who we are and what we do and what we believe. And uh, I think it made me think about uh, the identity word as I read the paper. Us too. Us too. <laughs> um, so uh, my next question would be, um, there are any suggestions with uh, current pain that uh, clarinetists experience such as lip, uh, lower lip, especially thumb or non-musculoskeletal pain, such as anxiety or depression. So one of the, the things that we also asked clarinets about was their use of assistive aids. So this, for us, were neck straps and tooth guards primarily. Uh, when we were talking about neck straps, we were meaning something that would hook from the back of your neck to the instrument, and then the tooth guard would be like maybe a piece of cigarette paper or some wax or something that you put on your lower teeth to protect your lower lip. Um, these kinds of assistive aids, we found that about 71% of our female clarinetists use them, use the neck straps, uh, while only 28% of male clarinetists use neck straps. Similarly, 60% of our female clarinetists reported using a tooth guard, while only 37% of male clarinetists reported using uh, the, the tooth guard. Now, we don't, we didn't really ask any other questions about maybe why this is, but just from our research, uh, knowing the female clarinetist did experience more pain, it's possible that they were using these assistive aids to try to mitigate some of these pain responses and make clarinet playing a little bit more comfortable for them. We did also ask our clarinetists about the how effective they felt that these tools were. And we found that the people who were using these tools felt that they were more effective than the people who were not using these tools. 
also kind of makes sense. But just knowing that uh, if you are using these tools, you're likely to experience some benefit and maybe some relief from them, I think can provide some insights into maybe band directors or other people who just have this like negative stigma. I really see this with uh, neck strap use where clarinet is not supposed to be an instrument that we use a neck strap with, but I am a clarinet player who uses a neck strap. I know Kensley is also a clarinet player who uses a neck strap. And I think that I know for me, I would not be able to play as effectively or as efficiently as I do without the use of an X-Trap. And so being able to maybe go outside of what we consider like the norms or traditional clarinet uh, values, perhaps with encouraging students to use neck traps when they need to, especially if they are in seasons of maybe ramping up for an audition where they're playing a lot more, or if they are, let's say, going to an honor band where they're used to playing, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half a day and then all of a sudden they're playing for an eight hour period for three days in a row and then trying to put on a concert all of those situations where you're really changing your habits providing some kind of tool that can increase the effectiveness of your playing and hopefully the longevity of where you're able to play comfortably is i think an important part of what we can do as pedagogues and as teachers to help our students absolutely and and exactly what Megan said is part of, again, this biopsychosocial model. So what are the beliefs as part of like the psychological profile of the student or of their mentor that aid in their health or lack of health at the current time? Um, so just to keep that in mind. And then, Xabi, you, you also asked about... Um, for performance anxiety and things like that. And it's not something that, that we touched on heavily in our research because we didn't really ask about, okay, well, well, what is the most effective way to combat performance anxiety? But what we can tell you is there is research from Harvard that talks about um, using your brain to convince yourself that you are excited about something rather than anxious. So this researcher had uh, three groups of people doing karaoke and there was a control group. And then there was a group that said, oh, I'm so anxious to go on stage. You know, I don't want to do this. And then there was another group that said, oh, I am so excited to perform karaoke. And what they found was that those who said, I'm excited, experienced less performance anxiety than either the control or those who said, you know, I really don't want to do this. I'm really anxious about this. Um, we also know that from nursing research that nursing teachers who do meditation and mindfulness exercises with their students have a greater bond and trust built to talk about the problems that they're experiencing. So we believe that possibly in music as well, if the music teacher and the student were able to create a bond through meditation or mindfulness, that it could create a safer pathway to talk about these issues as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and actually that ties to, uh, what I just mentioned, uh, Kensley, it ties to my next question, which would be how, how does the research help performing faculty at universities mostly in preventing performing hazards, either their own or with their students? I wish there was more research to talk about this area. Um, most everything I'm going to share at this point is anecdotal. Um, but an easy example that I can give you is in regards to hearing health. So many schools of music uh, will say, okay, musicians are experiencing noise-induced hearing loss. We need to give them earplugs. And this is their, their solution. Well, 
what they don't know is that these earplugs aren't designed effectively for musicians. They're designed effectively for factory workers. And while earplugs can provide some benefit, they have massive limitations when it comes to protecting musicians. And the reason for this is that they only test seven frequency points. So that would be like, and I got this from Megan, so I'm going to give her full credit for this, but it's effectively like a piano tuner coming in and tuning seven notes and leaving and saying, the piano's in tune. Well, the piano's probably not in tune because you only tune seven frequencies. Well, these musicians, we these earplugs, we don't know that they work effectively across all frequencies because they were only tested at seven points. And so having that knowledge allows people to make informed and educated decisions for themselves. Because as I mentioned, and I'll come back to this again and again, because it is so important, everybody's health profile is so different and we need to consider their health through this biopsychosocial lens to create the best health protocol for themselves. And so bringing in this research and this knowledge gives people the autonomy to make informed decisions. And I think that is the most critical aspect to our research and what we can help provide uh, music educators and young musicians alike. And this is something we asked our clarinetists about as well. You know, we asked them, should collegiate clarinet faculty inform students about health concerns? And should collegiate clarinet faculty have adequate training prior to informing these students about health concerns. And vastly, everyone said yes to both of these questions, right? But there's not really clear evidence on exactly how at the NASM level everyone is being trained, and then also how teachers are supposed to inform. So I think we have a lot of work to do in this area, but I think that there's a lot of hope. Uh, you know, some of the work that people like Kensley and people like myself and other musician health researchers we know are really trying to take all of this jargon and what we know from the musician health field, which is a vast amount, and really boil it down into ways that musicians and teachers and uh, clarinetists, student, clarinet students, all these people can really understand, which I think has been a, a really key factor that has been missing from at least our time being in the performing arts health field, which has been, um, you know, we are growing researchers still and very excited to keep moving forward in this area, but also something that we've seen as a, perhaps a limitation of where we are right now. And we're looking forward to hopefully changing that in the future. So you mentioned limitations and and uh, both uh, mentioned that uh, there's only one added research specified for uh, clarinetists on the subject. Um, how does the research help? Um, or what are the limitations of research and how does it fill the gap in, in the current climate of musicians' health and occupational hazards? One of the main limitations of our research is that it is self-reported. So we are completely relying on people's own education and their perceptions of what is happening. So one area to be expanded upon is to actually have sort of more hands-on data. As you mentioned earlier, when you were asking about the facial muscles. So you could do EMG research where you're putting stickers on the different muscles, like the masseter muscle and the temporalis muscle and understand what is working with the embouchure. And maybe if there is an imbalance between the muscle groups, and this is actually what's creating more embouchure pain and um, those types of things. Um, we also, I would love to see research done between the difference between the German and the French systems to understand if maybe there is a better option. Um, we know from 
while there are only these two clarinet specific epidemiology or population studies, there is more research on forces that happen on clarinet wrists. And they looked at which notes provide more force. And open G on the clarinet provided the most force on the right wrist. And where do most clarinet pedagogy books start? It's open G. And so maybe exploring if adjusting clarinet pedagogy from the very beginning would help lessen the chance for injury. So those are some of my goals and visions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, what are some, some of the changes you both would like to see in the future happen because of the research or because we are just pushing forward and in our understanding of, of our own health occupational hazards? I want every clarinetist to understand the joys that come with starting music and the benefits of playing music. And also that every good thing also has an inherent risk factor and that's okay. But having that knowledge up front and not pretending like that knowledge doesn't exist, uh, but taking the steps to prevent injuries in the first place, that, that our community has the knowledge up front to say, hey, let's try and stop this from happening as much as possible. Rather than pushing through pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or having to address it on the backside, because one of the things from our study was 90% of clarinetists experienced pain, but only 35% sought help. So maybe it's that they don't know where to get help. Maybe it's they don't have the resources to get help. I'm not really sure which it was, but that's also a huge thing I would love to see addressed in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, my last question would be to both of you is, when would this research article be available? We're hoping it will be published by the end of 2023, as of course, with any peer review process, uh, it can they can have a very short turnaround or a very long turnaround, just depending on how many, um, how many articles are in the queue, but hopefully very, very soon. But even if it's not quite published yet, you can hire either myself or Megan to come speak at your university and we are able to talk about this research freely and so if you're wanting that information more quickly we can actually provide that to your studio or to your university as well thank you very much um well um is there anything you both would like to add to the podcast kensley i feel like you should mention um the svpi part of this research. We haven't had a chance to talk about that yet. Yes. Um, so at the top of the podcast, I mentioned that I struggled with a nasal air leak, which I found out had a very long, complicated name, which is stress velopharyngeal insufficiency. And uh, I have published several times on this topic, and I was very curious about what the clarinet population actually had to say about SVPI because prior research done um, by Malik et al. showed that clarinet had some of the highest intraoral pressure and the intraoral pressure of playing a wind instrument could be measured up to 30 times greater than that of normal speech, which can break down the soft palate and cause the muscles to fatigue to the point that air is leaking out of their nose. So when we asked clarinetist about this, only eight 
of our 350 clarinetists said, oh yes, I have experienced SVPI, but actually over 50 said that they had symptoms of SVPI. And of course I'm not there, I can't diagnose them, but it is indicative that maybe people don't know that there is this problem that they are experiencing and that there is a name for it and that there is a way to get help for it. And I think that that just sort of backs up our point of that knowledge is power and that if people know that this thing is a problem, then they can get help. And I think, Megan, you can speak to this because I think that you also didn't know it had a name for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would experience it you know, in times of high stress in my playing, especially when I was ramping up for my master's degree recitals. And even just playing while I was at UNT, I wasn't uh, pursuing a recital, but just playing the little bit that I did in uh, private lessons. If it was during a time where we were writing a lot of papers or having high stress in exams, I would get in, I wasn't sleeping well, wasn't eating well, those sorts of things. I would get this nasal air leak and I had no idea what it was until I met Kensley and she filled me in and was like, well, this, there's just some things you can do to kind of manage these levels of stress and hopefully not experience so much of the pain or so much of the nasal air leak, which was very helpful. So I think that it's just a really... Like she said, knowledge is power. Being able to put this research together was meaningful for us in so many ways, but I think the most meaningful aspect has been able to really pinpoint some of the things that maybe clarinetists don't um, think about every day or don't have a, a, a way to handle, like SVPI is a great example of this, and kind of put something together where maybe it won't give them all the answers, but hopefully it gives them some answers and can bring this to, you know, their teachers or their mentors and hopefully start conversations about what we can do as a clarinet community to not have this be such a taboo topic, which I feel like it has, mm -hmm. it has been for a long time. Um, you know, I've been to quite a few conferences just in general, and I feel like health and wellness sessions are always the ones that are like full, which is great. People are really interested in this stuff. We don't, as clarinetists, until this paper, I feel like we didn't have um, as much uh, quantitative data as we do now, which is really, really exciting. Absolutely. No, thank you very much for attending um, to, to that question. It's a, I think it's a crucial part. I, in my profession, I've um, both Europe and in, in the US, I heard of quite a few clarinetist uh, getting tired of the, like 45 60 minute playing mm -hmm. um, on the clarinet at a concert and so I was always told it's just, well this is just fatigue just uh, <clears throat> tiredness of the muscle and nothing special you know happened about it but uh, it's good that there is uh, preventative um, steps that we can take well, Absolutely. thank you. Thank you uh, to both of you uh, for being with us and accepting the invitation and also for sharing um, this research that you have done and, and your story and all that experience that you have accumulated throughout the years. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank very you much so much for, for having us. us.